Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. Ah, so good to be here together with you. Um, I saw a pretty funny article from the Babylon Bee. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a satirical news website. And one of their headlines this week was, Pastor's Hellfire Sermon is really downplayed because of the kids' decor on stage. And I was like, ha! <laughs> That's pretty great. Don't worry, it's not a Hellfire Sermon this morning, although yet that is true and something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, we are continuing on in our series through the book of Mark called Remarkable, because that's what we see when we look at the life of Jesus. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can go to Mark chapter 2. We'll also put it up on the screens as well. So, let us read, starting in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. The word of the Lord. So here we find Jesus once again beside a lake the Sea of Galilee, and he's walking along and he sees Levi, the tax collector. Now, we're pretty sure that this Levi also has another name, uh, Matthew, the tax collector, that we see referenced in other places in Scripture. We don't know exactly why they reference him here as Levi and then in other places as Matthew. Um, it could be perhaps that Levi got a name change to Matthew. Levi means joined. Matthew means the gift of God. Um, but whatever the case, Levi or Matthew, this tax collector, um, Jesus sees him and he calls him out. It's a pretty simple call. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, follow me. There's no reasoning. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> oh, got something in my throat. <laughs> it's not that I'm just emotional about that part. He doesn't, he doesn't reason with Levi, this tax collector, who you think would be probably a pretty logistic kind of, kind of person. He doesn't give him a cost-benefit analysis. 
I mean, he doesn't even make him a promise like he does with Peter and Andrew, like, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. He says, no, just follow me. So Levi gets up, walks off the job, peace out, I'm done, I'm following Jesus now. I mean, put yourself at your workplace, doing your job. Jesus comes along and is like, follow me. In that moment, are you like, see ya? Or it's like, can I finish my job today? Or can I work out the week? Or, you know, whatever project I'm working on? No, he immediately follows Jesus. I mean, it was a cushy job for him too, realistically. I mean, there's a reason why tax collectors were kind of shunned because they would often just take a little bit extra for themselves, kind of pad their lifestyle. Now, I'm pretty certain, like very, very high percentage is certain, that Levi already knew of Jesus and possibly had even seen him before. Now, did you know that Jesus moved from Nazareth, where he was with his mother and father, and his father's not in the picture as he's older. We don't know exactly what happened. But he moves from Nazareth, and he moves to Capernaum. I mean, we have a picture um, we could put up at this point, Sharon. So there's Nazareth kind of right in the middle, and he moves up to Capernaum, which is right beside the Sea of Galilee, um, to be maybe right on the lake. Could be Jesus really liked that. But so he moves to Capernaum, and we have this here in Matthew 4, 12 to 17. It says this, when Jesus heard that John had been put, put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Oh, Brad, you're the man, thanks. Um, to fulfill what was said through the prophet of Isaiah. So he moved there after he heard John the Baptist had been put in prison, and it was to fulfill prophecy which was in the Old Testament, which was land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And this part we hear at Christmas, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This was specifically about Jesus moving to Capernaum. So in Matthew 9, we also see when Jesus is on the other side of the lake, he crosses over the lake, Matthew 9, 1. It says, Jesus stepped in a boat, crossed over, and he came to his own town. It's like his place. So Capernaum was Jesus' base of operation throughout his ministry. Um, now, most likely, he moved in with Andrew and Peter. It says Andrew and Peter had a house there, um, and Peter's wife and Peter's mother-in-law lived there as well. So can you, can you think about this? Like, Jesus the Bachelor crashing at a friend's place. Like, could be. I mean, I don't know if he ever owned his own house. Probably not, but he probably stayed with friends. Or maybe with the family of the Zebedees, like James and John, because um, they lived in Capernaum as well. So, Jesus gets to Capernaum. He moves there. And what does he start doing? He starts stirring things up. He starts kicking out demons, healing a bunch of diseases. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And it says the next day, well, actually, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Everybody heard about it, and like, they crashed the house, and there were just so many people. This was before the story we heard last week about them digging a hole through the roof. So this is, they were all just so many people at the house, and Jesus heals all the diseases. And then it says, in the night, while everyone was still sleeping, he like sneaks out. <laughs> to get away and pray, and his disciples come looking for him, and they say, Jesus, the whole town is looking for you. Come on! 
So this is the whole town of Capernaum. There was 15 to 2,000, 1,500 to 2,000 people that we estimate lived in Capernaum. So if you're living in a small town and there's some crazy hullabaloo going on, if you're the tax man, I'm pretty sure you've heard about Jesus. Most likely, the tax booth was actually close to the lake because they would have a fish tax. Actually, the historical evidence suggests that you had to buy a license to be a fisherman in that day, and the fee for a license could have been anywhere from 25 to 40% of what you catch, like the tax on it. So this is crazy. Like, there's a lot of tax stuff going on. So this is a complete side note, but this is just, I thought this was really cool. Andrew and Peter, if we can show that map again, Andrew and Peter, brothers that Jesus probably most likely moved in with, they're actually from Bethsaida. But they moved to Capernaum. Do you know why? Probably because they could get a tax break. This, this red line was the main trade route of the time. And you see how they're in a different um, area? What's the name? Different like province than Galilee. So to cross over into Galilee and sell in Capernaum on that trade route, they'd have to pay an import fee and tax. So they probably moved to Capernaum, maybe not the only reason, maybe there was better fishing there. But so I'm sure these guys are very familiar with the tax system and Levi at this point. So Jesus causes a stir. The whole town comes out looking for him. They're like, Jesus, we need you. And he's like, hey, I got to go elsewhere. I'm going to go out around and preach to the other communities because they need to hear as well. So he goes out, he goes on this like, I don't know, a few week long trip and he's kicking out demons and he's healing people and it's awesome and it's amazing. And then he comes home back to Capernaum. And it says in Mark chapter two, verse one, which, we, which Brad uh, spoke on last week, a few days later when Jesus again came to Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, so to his home. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. So this is when they dug a hole through the roof and, and whatnot. So, if you are Levi, you've heard of Jesus, you know of crazy stuff that has gone on. It's not just like, you know, word of mouth stuff. He probably knew people. Like if the whole town is seeking after him and Jesus is healing everybody, I'm sure that he knew people that had been healed and had seen things happen that he was like, hey, there's something going on here. We think his tax booth might have been right on the beach, which is where Jesus came and there was a miraculous catch of fish with Andrew and Peter. He might have even witnessed that. So, if you're Levi, you've heard about this man, maybe you've seen some of his crazy miracles, and he just walks by, he's like, follow me. Levi had to have a conviction in his heart already of who Jesus was, to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving it all falling after you. So much so, I mean, he throws a party, which is awesome. He throws a party and invites all of his tax collector buddies because there was different levels of taxation and who was in charge of what and, and whatnot. So there was all these people that Levi invited over. A great way to meet people if you were Jesus, especially if you want to come and save those who are lost, right? If you think about it, it'd probably be the best environment for a physician to be is where the sick people are. So Jesus' whole mission on earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. So for him, it was a no-brainer to go to this party, but the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they didn't understand that part of Jesus' mission. 
They didn't see themselves even perhaps as needing saving because they were already doing what they thought was adequate enough to get by or even better. So Jesus makes it clear. I mean, it's awesome that Jesus, he's pretty blunt when it comes to dealing with the Pharisees, but I think also he's trying to just open their eyes to the truth. So he calls them out on this quite often to see that they need someone to save them as well. And the Pharisees, if you don't understand, they were kind of like a legalistic, strict denomination. Um, so we have all our different denominations, you know, like Alliance and Baptist and Pentecostal and, and whatnot. So they had like Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots. They also had their own little distinct thing. And some of them had major differences. I mean, they, you can get into arguments about that all you want. But anyways, the, the Pharisees are very strict legalistic in, in how they approached um, their faith. What I find interesting in this story is, well, there's a lot of things that are interesting, but the Pharisees come and they don't ask Jesus this question. They ask his disciples. They come and ask his disciples, he's like, why, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because they believed, this was their belief, that if you associated with someone who was unclean or not good enough, then you too would become unclean. They didn't understand that Jesus was there to seek and to save, which was lost. Now, in thinking about this, the Pharisees looked at Jesus' life. I mean, and Jesus was someone that was causing a pretty big stir, so it was like, hey, this is a guy to pay attention to. So they looked at his life, and they saw something different in what he was doing versus what they were doing. And it was a little convicting for them. And so I was thinking in my own life, what happens when we come up against seeing someone living differently than we do? Now, honestly, I think two of the first responses that often come in our minds are either jealousy or judgment. If someone gets to do something in their life that you don't get to do in your life, you're like, oh man, I wish I could go on that holiday or have a camper that nice or well, summer, okay? Or, it's been thoughts that are going around, all right? Um, it goes to like the jealousy. But on the other side of it is if someone's doing something that you are like, oh, I don't do that and I do not approve of doing that, it goes to the judgment. And we see the Pharisees here, they're like on the judgment. Jesus is doing something that they're like, no, that's not right, that's wrong. And how can you be a holy person if, you, if you're doing that? I love Jesus' response. Man, if you just take all of like, the times people came and asked Jesus questions and just looked at those, it's like, man, Jesus. I mean, it's because he's God and whatnot, but I'm like, that is some unreal wisdom and insight to get to things. So I mean, take some time and study that. But his response is just right to the heart of the matter. He's like, I've come to call the sinners to repentance. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's those who are sick. He had an entirely different mission than what they thought. He came to save those who were sick and lost. He came not to judge the world, but to save it. He came to restore what was broken. He came to give good news to the poor. Are we doing the same thing? Are you and I doing the same thing and the same things that Jesus did? Do we live up to our name of Christian, which is little Christ, like Christ, living in the way that our master did, coming to seek and to save that which was lost or do we see a difference in how we're living versus how Jesus lived? 
Everybody else looked into Jesus' life and they saw a difference. I mean, that's what the next part of the story says. People were looking at the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist and they looked at Jesus' disciples and they said, there's something different here. These guys are fasting. These guys aren't fasting. What's up? Now, I love that these people, they actually come and they ask Jesus. This is great. I don't think they had any malicious intent or like trying to trick Jesus like a lot of people that came with questions come, come to trick him. I mean, he just got out of that so fast. Um, but that's what they came and they asked. They asked Jesus the question, which is a great person to ask questions, mind you. And notice this, that he doesn't say fasting is bad or that they should not fast. He simply is saying to them that for his disciples, now's not the time to fast. It's time to party. Because <laughs> he was the good news. He was the Messiah. They've been waiting hundreds of years for this guy to show up. Redemption has finally come to his people, so celebration was at hand. So when we look at fasting, New Testament biblical fasting, what I would say is kind of what, what we strive for today, that's a longing for Jesus, to know him more, a desire to draw closer to him. We give up food as if we're saying, this food is not truly what I want. What I want is more of you, Jesus. They literally could not fast because they had Jesus with them. Jesus explains that if they did fast, it would ruin the party or the garment or wine. So, I, mean, I think we can understand the, the garment one where like an unshrunk piece of cloth on a garment, um, when you wash it, it'll shrink and it'll, it'll rip. But the, the wine and the wineskins, I didn't fully understand. Um, but when you put wine into a new wineskin, all the processes that have to happen within the wine, they expand and stretch that wineskin. So you put it in a new skin, stretches it out. So if you have a stretched out skin already and you put new wine into it and it tries to stretch out that skin, as Jesus said, it will burst and make a big sticky mess and you will ruin both things. There was only one fast that's actually commanded in the Old Testament and that was on the Day of Atonement. So the fast that they're asking about is a fast that the Pharisees and uh, the disciples of John the Baptist just decided to do themselves. Or it was a cultural thing, um, probably like a twice a week kind of a fast is what they were asking about. But when it come to, came down to the Old Testament law, there was only one that they were told they had to fast on on the Day of Atonement. So this is kind of extra stuff that they're asking about. Um, but, see, the Pharisees, they did a lot of things to be seen by other people to be recognized, they'd stand on a corner and yell out their prayers to God so everyone could hear them and be like, oh, you are so holy of a person. Um, and Jesus really goes after that at some points about the heart. But he doesn't at this point. He doesn't say at this point, like talking about the heart of their fasting. He's like, no, I think he's just answering some people who are legitimately just seeking to know the answer to this question. Why is there a difference? He's just answering, now's not the time for my disciples to fast. He says, but they will fast. They will long for me when I am gone. And how can we relate? Oh, we long for Jesus to return. So think of it like this. You have a bachelor or a bachelorette party. Everyone's enjoying themselves. You got wedding-themed treats, not for the guys. They just probably got smoked meats. Um, 
Music's pumping, people are laughing, celebrating, like you're giving gifts to your, your, uh, your wedding party, you know, everyone's all dressed up. But there's one person who's just refusing to enjoy the festivities. They're wailing in the corner. Woe is me! They keep throwing dust on their head. They haven't showered, they're dressed in rags, they won't open a present, they kick it away to the side. I don't deserve any presents. Why can't I get married? What is it, my turn? They go and they pout in a corner. They keep changing all your music to really depressing Taylor Swift songs. <laughs> Man, what a party pooper. That would just kill the celebration. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's like, this is not the time. I mean, in Ecclesiastes, we hear, there was a time and a season for everything under the sun. He's like, but this was not the time for them to fast. I mean, that's why people said Jesus came. He was eating and drinking. They called him a glutton because he was celebrating. It was something to celebrate. But he says that one day he will be taken and then we will fast. And so today, we are what you would call old wine. <laughs> We fast, we long for Jesus. So there are two good questions. Well, I mean, there's probably a lot of good questions, but there's two good questions that you should ask when you're reading scripture or, scripture or reading, reading a story or a passage. What does this tell us about God or Jesus? And the second one is, what does that mean for you and me? So what do these stories tell us about Jesus and who he is? Well, I think the second one, I think Jesus is a great person to ask questions to. I think that we just need to seek him for more things rather than just try to decide on our own often. Like, Jesus is the best person to ask your questions to and there's a lot of things I do not know and I do not understand when I look around our world. And I'm like, I don't get it. Or even when I read the scripture, there's some things I'm just like, I do not get this. I think Jesus is the best person to ask our questions to. Because he doesn't shut them down when they're asked in earnest and honesty and not malicious. I mean, we see when people come and ask him questions with malicious intent, trying to trap him, he still answers their question. <laughs> But when people are seeking after Jesus, being like, hey, I actually have a question. I see a difference. I don't understand this, and I want to know the answer. I think he's the best person to ask. When he was asked by his disciples and those following him, he said, teach us how to pray. He says, well, pray like this, our Father in heaven. And we have the Lord's Prayer. And right after that, there's passages where he says, ask seek and knock or that might be in the wrong order <laughs> ask and you'll be given seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened under you this is all in regards to prayer which is talking to god so i think i think sometimes we're like okay i'll ask god hey god okay that's about it i didn't didn't get an answer but he's like ask Seek, knock. Like, this is like a continual going after. Like, you ask. It's like, hmm, okay, now I'm, now I'm going. I'm, I'm seeking, I'm finding. And it's like, oh, now I'm knocking. I'm pounding. 
So this is like something that you are actually actively going for when we're seeking answers and questions from the Lord. Like, don't just be like, eh, and then walk away. Like, no, pursue it. Go after it. And the other thing I think this story tells us about Jesus is he calls those who are sick and hurting, lost and dying, to follow him. The ones that we maybe despise and reject. That's who Jesus calls because that's who he came for. So what does it mean for us? Do you know you need Jesus to save you? Do you realize your need for him? Do you need his love and forgiveness? Or maybe we have the thinking like, oh, I'm pretty good. I'm all right. I'm not as bad as some other people. What is our response? Is our response, oh, thank you, God, I'm not like that sinner, or have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Because he is gracious and kind. He is a good heavenly father. He is perfect. He is a perfect father, if we can imagine what that looks like. I know I am a very flawed father. But he is a perfect father. He loves you dearly. He wants what is best for you, and his call to you is follow me. Are we going to respond like Levi? You're like, okay, all right. Or do we have reservations? Be like, oh, well, I pray that our response can be like Levi when God calls us to follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you, God. And I thank you so much for your word that shows us who you are, shows us how you lived on this earth, how we should live on this earth. God, we thank you so much. God, we thank you for the example of Levi just following after you. Get up and follow you, Lord, when you call. Immediate response. God, I pray that that will be our hearts, that it would be our desire to seek and follow you in the same way. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we always have people here to pray with you. So if the prayer team wants to come down at this point, um, if you need to just pray with someone, just come on up. Maybe just take a moment in your pew. Like, God wants to have a relationship with you. So um, we invite you to take advantage of that and encourage you to do that. Um, also, be in prayer for our day camp this week um, as you go. But uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great week.